Hello and welcome to One Great History. I'm Alex. I'm Sabrina. And we're here with our friend and producer Nick. How's everybody doing? We're well, we're doing okay. <laughs> we were talking a little Alex, before. Alex, this is a really strong start to the episode. Let's come in high, lots of energy. Just, uh, did I don't know, maybe break a rift. <laughs> but I'm doing okay. And I can't laugh too much or I will injure myself. So this won't be a fun episode. No, you've heard at the top. Gonna We're not going to real... do any bits. We're not going to joke around at all. No jokes. <laughs> Some how, people how... will really like that. If we if we have zero laughs. <laughs> we did get told off for laughing too much. We have once. been told off for laughing. This is the episode you've been waiting for. <laughs> how did you hurt your ribs? Uh, okay. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually even worse than the short story I told you oh. a few minutes. Okay. So um, my boyfriend texted me that he was coming over and he was bringing me a present. So I got excited. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I heard him pull up outside, and I was excited, so I rushed to the door to greet him and just full-on wiped out down the stairs. So he opened the door, and I was on the landing, just, like, wheezing, unable to breathe. So, very romantic. Was the present worth the fall? It was a nice present, but it was not worth the fall. It's a very cute little teacup with two cats that look like my cats. Oh, yeah. it is nice. It is very nice. But yeah, probably not worth breaking your rib over. No, definitely not. <laughs> don't recommend. Don't recommend yeah. breaking your ribs. That's super fair. <laughs> um, I do also just want to give a little plug for our Patreon. Uh, Patreon up top. Um, last month you pranked me. <laughs> yeah, I did on the Patreon. So if you want to hear that. It's Definitely, a good time, yeah. yeah. Give us give us five dollars, and you can hear Sabrina play an April Fool's joke on me <laughs> that Alex did not see coming because we did not record it on April Fool's. No. <laughs> All right, I guess we can get into it. Um, so today we're going to be talking about William Beale, who's been one of my favorite kind of Manitoba figures for a couple of years. Yeah, like I've heard of him through you a couple of times. Yes, and I feel like he's he's shown up in a few different places. Yeah. Um, like he's been written about kind of briefly, but, um, I think a lot of the accounts that I've heard of him miss a lot of the really like wonderfully whimsical things about him, which is why I love him so much. So we're going to be talking a lot about that. Um, so in brief, he was one of the only black homesteaders in Manitoba. Okay. Now I cannot with any confidence tell you how many there were. (laughs) Oh no. Because, um, black historiography in this province is like not great. No, and I, whenever I've seen, like, Black Canadian history, it's always of the prairies or of Toronto. Yes. Where Manitoba's kind of lumped in with the rest of it. Absolutely, yeah. And um, because of that, this is going to be, like, a context-heavy episode because we have to go over, like, yeah. a lot of immigration stuff. Because we have to make that make sense why we had so few yeah. Black homesteaders, right? Um, so yeah, we're going to talk a lot about William Beale as like an individual and just kind of what a wonderful and eccentric person he seems to have been. But yeah, it doesn't really make sense to tell this story without an explanation of why a black homesteader was like unusual in Manitoba at this time, uh, like the turn of the century. It does also mean we're going to be talking a lot about some like pretty appalling instances of racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. So just like for listeners, be prepared and... Mm -hmm you know, take care of yourself if you don't want to listen to that. That's okay. Um, Sabrina, do you want to explain super quickly what homesteading is? Yeah, I mean, essentially farming. Yes. The the (laughs) long and short of it is that. But, like, homesteading in the terms of, like, Canada in the 1870s and 80s is the process of, like, 
you get a certain amount of acres yep. through the Homesteading Act. It was like, what, 180? It was a usually 160. Oh, I was so close. Very to close. Nice job. Thank you. I only remember numbers related to Winnipeg history. Everything else goes out of my mind. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, you would have like a year or two to farm a certain amount. And that was your property. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So it was usually $10 for 160 acres. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in the late 19th century. And so, yeah, the caveat is you have to what they do like break or clear a certain amount of that land usually 30 acres depending on the kind of land and you had to like do certain things as well like to build like a house right yes you had to build a house and then i think either like have 30 head of cattle or like a garden or something like that so this is basically an effort to colonize the west and Mm -hmm. incentivize immigration and it's like it's almost free right like Mm -hmm. i mean ten dollars isn't nothing but a lot more back then, but still yes, affordable. A lot more, for sure, for 160 acres, right? Um, but as one person put it, that was the government's bet. They bet you $10 against you starving to death on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing the ads for like homesteading because they'd put them out in like yes. Ukraine and in Russia in different languages. And the posters always be like these beautiful wheat fields. And then you'd yes. come to Manitoba and no wheat. Just kind of like rocky plains. Yeah, yeah. I have a couple of those that I'll read a little later on. But yes, 100%. They it's a trick. Were like A little bit of trick, yes. So, like, and certainly homesteaders face, like, a ton of hardships. But, like, it is a pretty good deal, I guess. Yeah. Like, if you had the capacity for it, right? Yeah. Like, if you're someone who's, say, already an experienced farmer. Yeah. And maybe you're working on someone else's land. To have yeah. the opportunity to come and have your own, that's, that's pretty good. Or you have at least, you know, a family you can farm some of the work out too oh yeah totally um and also i think it's worth noting that by the way this was not like empty or unused land right yeah. this was like first and foremost indigenous land and this was like homesteading was an intentional push, push yeah um and also like in addition to that just like important habitats for a variety of animals and plants that or the uh, tall grass prairie which is now all but gone yes so just because there isn't a farm on land does not mean that it's unused or not useful so yeah you know just something to keep in mind um but there are a number of reasons why immigration to canada from the u.s might have been desirable at this time um for you know african-american immigrants not least of which was that this was a time period when Jim Crow laws were being enacted mm-hmm. across the United States. Um, and there were a large number of successful black farmers in the U.S. who might have tried their hand at homesteading. So, oh, yeah. like, why didn't they? Yeah. Is kind of the question. Yeah. And I, that's, that's not to say that none of them did. But, yeah. like, why were there relatively small numbers compared to other numbers of immigrants? Yeah. It's not accidental is what we'll find. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, just a super quick survey of black immigration before this period. So Mm -hmm. in 1793, Upper Canada began the gradual abolition of slavery, with slavery being kind of like properly abolished in most British colonies in 1834. But like abolish in quotation marks. Uh, Yes. Some people were like grandfathered in. Yeah. Or you can find all kinds of loopholes. Yes. Um, but that does mean so from the early 1800s until the end of the Civil War in 1865, a pretty significant number of enslaved people came to Canada via the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. So I think this is the kind of black immigration that a lot of us are familiar with. That's from the our, story like, I remember learning in like fifth grade social totally. studies. Totally. I was going to say our like middle school history yeah. classes, 100%. Um, most of those people were immigrating to Ontario as mm-hmm. well as Quebec and Nova Scotia, not so much the prairies. I mean... Before 1865, there wasn't 
a ton to come Nova and find Nova Scotia here. had like a pretty sizable like black totally. community that was I think all but destroyed during the Titanic explosion in 1917 and then not rebuilt. Yeah. I mean that's its whole own story, <laughs> but yes. Um a lot of um, people, too, who had come via the Underground Railroad returned to the U.S. after yeah. the Civil War to rejoin their families yeah, and such. that makes sense. Yeah. So after the Civil War, there's certainly less incentive to immigrate as mm-hmm. a black American. Um, and Canadian immigration campaigns, as you said, they were focusing mostly on, like, Eastern Europe and, like, Central Europe and the U.K. Yeah. People who were white, uh, yes. I could put forward. <laughs> <laughs> like, not always in so many words, but... but you know, wink and a nod, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the turn of the century, there's this big new immigration campaign, specifically with the goal of bringing farmers and farm laborers to Western Canada. This campaign was led largely by Clifford Sifton, and he was explicitly trying not to recruit immigrants to urban centers. He was basically yeah. like, there's enough people in the cities. We're not letting them in anymore. <laughs> Great. We just want farmers now. Yeah. So he did a few different things to help facilitate this. One was to abolish the land grant system. Mm -hmm. So previously, the railway companies, especially CPR, had been holding on to like huge tracts of land that they weren't actually using. I guess just with like the expectation that like if they needed it, they could have it. Maybe. I guess. So basically what he said was like, okay, you need to actually choose what land you want. Yeah. So that freed up the rest of it for homesteading. Yeah. Um, and the homesteading land offer did already exist as well, mm-hmm. though this, you know, they added more land to it. But he m- began promoting it heavily via pamphlets, ads mm-hmm. in foreign newspapers, guided tours for foreign journalists, and so on. Um, and heavily promoting in the U.S. Okay. So opening immigration agencies in over 21 American cities and taking out ads. Oh, here, this is yeah. where I get to read you a couple of these. Hey, I love the old ads. Oh, here, actually, first of all, I'll tell you Sifton's ideal immigrant was. Yes, please. um, The stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat, born on the soil, whose forefathers have been farmers for ten generations, with a stout wife and a half dozen children. (laughs) Uh, Who doesn't love a stout wife? (laughs) (laughs) We all endeavor to be a stout wife one day. (laughs) Um, Okay, so here's uh, an ad that ran in 1900 in Detroit, Michigan. Go in the spring and take up a free farm of 160 acres in western Canada, close to schools, churches, railways, and markets. The richest land on earth. The best climate with the fullest enjoyment of health. (laughs) The laughing already at the best climate, yeah. You see it all the time. Railways spreading out in every direction. Get in before the rush, secure a free homestead, and become independent. (laughs) Another reads, Western Canada, the new Eldorado... No. <laughs> Homes for everybody. Easy to reach. Nothing to fear. Protected by the government. Wheatland. Rich virgin soil. Land for mixed farming. Land for cattle raising. This is your opportunity. Why not embrace it? It says so much about the state of everything circa the late 1900s that nothing to fear is a viable tagline yeah. for a country. You won't be afraid here. What I was... Now, it doesn't say this explicitly. I was wondering if... It meant, like, nothing to fear of perhaps, like, indigenous nations. Almost definitely. Right? I sent you a while ago. Do you remember that survey thing I sent where it was, like, a booklet on questions about the West? Oh. And in yeah. that booklet, it was from around the same time. This was probably, like, late 1890s, early 1900s. There were a number of people who had written in to be like, are indigenous people there? And are they scary? Yep. 
So yeah, so I think that may be the implication here with the nothing to fear and protected by the government means. Yeah. Which in itself is like a horrifying other thing. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. Much to unpack and none of it is nice. uh, No, much to unpack. Much of it we are not going to get to right now. A lot of it's just like straight up lies. (laughs) (laughs) Including the weather is nice all the time. Yeah, uh, not true. (laughs) Um, But at first glance here, there's no element of like racial exclusion, right? Yeah. It is saying like, everybody, come on up. Um, and Sifton did write to Laurier, We have not been disposed to exclude foreigners of any nationality who seemed likely to become sex- successful agriculturalists. Okay. But I guess ethnicity is different than skin color. Yes. And also, there's this little bit about seemed likely to become successful Sus- agriculturists. Right, yeah. Like, according to whom, by what metric. <laughs> did they bring their stout wife with them or didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> How many children do they have? Is it half a dozen? Five kids? No, get out of here. (laughs) That's not enough. Have one more and get back to us. Um, So from around like 1897, um, black pioneers begin making their way to the Canadian prairies Mm -hmm. um, based on these ads, or at least trying to. Okay. So specifically, a number of African-American farmers begin coming from Oklahoma. So the context here is that Oklahoma had just become a state. Okay. And this is sort of complicated American politics stuff, but... Because it had been under federal control beforehand, it was, like, it had, like, marginally fewer discriminatory laws. Okay. So the new state government comes in and begins passing new, like, Jim Crow laws that make life more difficult. And also, like, stripping voting rights and all kinds of things. So there's reason to leave Oklahoma, essentially. And black Oklahomans were already farming successfully. Mm -hmm. So coming to Canada as farmers probably seemed pretty appealing. Yeah. Um... Many of them expressed excitement at the idea of owning their own land as well yeah. instead of sharecropping, mm-hmm. which could often be like kind of a ripoff. Yeah. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> sharecropping was, was often a ripoff. <laughs> hugely exploitative. Yeah. Again, a topic for another day. <laughs> History's too big, Sabrina. I can't tell you all of it. <laughs> Stop <What>? asking me to. <laughs> no, I demand it. This episode's going to be eight hours long. <laughs> Um, and we're getting really into the nitty gritty yeah, of farming. Of sharecropping. Um, there also was an expectation of like less racial discrimination yeah. in Canada. Um, so there were around 1,500 black settlers across the prairies in this period um, from like 1897 to around 1910. Yeah. Though this number is super sketchy. Yeah, you had mentioned finding like really inconsistent sources. Super inconsistent numbers. But the I think the important thing to note there is just that it's an extremely small number compared yeah. to like other immigrant groups. Yeah. Um, and the way I've seen a few historians put the thinking among white Canadians at the time is that one or two black immigrants were a curiosity, mm-hmm. but a thousand were a threat. Yeah. So it's worth noting that for many white Canadians, virtually their only knowledge of black people were either like wildly offensive minstrel shows. Right. Yep. Or the snippets of news from the U.S. that ran in local newspapers. Which also would have been wildly offensive for other reasons than the minstrel shows. For sure. Like, I I mean, we've been studying history for a long time, and I often think that I, I don't get emotional about things yeah. a lot anymore. But there are stories that they covered about, you know, lynchings and supposed mm-hmm. assaults perpetrated by black men on white women. And I found a lot of those very difficult to read. They're harrowing stories, yeah. Very difficult to read. And so... um. I find them difficult to read now for a very different reason than mm-hmm. they did around 1900. But, yeah. you know, that was the news that people were getting. 
Um, and certainly at the level of, like, border officials, many black immigrants are turned away for a variety of, like, often vague or dubious mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. But not much has been done at the kind of, like, legal or official level at this yeah. point to discourage black immigration. Okay. But the basis for legal exclusion is established in the 1910 Immigration Act, which allowed the governor in council, this is like super sneaky, okay, okay, to prohibit at any point immigrants belonging to any race, any race deemed unsuited to the climate or requirements of Canada. Oh. So this is a, a factor of like racism unique to Canada, I think. Yeah. Or I don't know, maybe Americans did it too, but... It's the argument that black people wouldn't be able to adapt to the Canadian climate, and therefore it was their in their own best interest that they be excluded. That's some paternalistic nonsense also. I Yes, totally. And it, it honestly makes me more angry than some of the other types, just because it's like, oh, it's in your own best interest. We're helping you. We're helping you. Yeah. It makes me very mad. Um, so, yeah. Um, but in 1911... Um, around 200 black Oklahomans arrive at Emerson. So this yeah. is, for non-Manitobans, like a big land crossing. It's the main border crossing to get to the States even today. Yep. Um, and at this point would have been the main um, border crossing for, like, the entirety of the prairies, essentially. Yeah. And so they were looking to travel on to Amber, Amber Valley, Alberta, where their families had already mm -hmm. settled. So officials began a rigorous examination over the course of 48 hours. Yeah which sounds like a long time to be hanging yeah. out at the border. So each of them had at least $300, which was $100 more than they needed. They were in good health um, and had documents attesting to their good moral standing. Mm. Um, the Tribune also refers to the Oklahoma party as being of respectable appearance and led by, by a fine old Negro gent. Okay. So essentially what this is is a party of black immigrants who cannot according to the rules at the time be turned away yeah and indeed they are admitted into canada yeah um what happens is that white canadians basically freak out oh yeah of course <laughs> so they begin creating petitions kind of scaremongering about imminent race riots 14 percent of edmonton residents sign a petition asking the federal government to turn away black immigrants it's stupid it's really stupid oh no some nice people turned up oh no <laughs> People who meet all of our requirements for immigration want to immigrate here. Ugh, the worst. Um, a woman from Brandon wrote to the Manitoba Free Press, and this is rough. As Negroes flourish in a hot country and do as little work as possible, it is hoped that Jack Frost will accomplish what the authorities apparently cannot. Again, I'm sorry, this is all, <laughs> this is all terrible, but I do, like, it doesn't make sense not to talk about it, yeah, right? Yeah, no. Um... Organized labor also opposed the entrance. Can I just say also the implication that Jack Frost is kind of racist? Yes. Yeah. A fun thing to just throw in there. Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> um, also, like, is the implication there that, like, people will die? Because that seems to be it, right? Yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah, organized labor also yeah. opposed the entrance of black immigrants. Um, in 1911, the Winnipeg Board of Trade voted to strongly urge upon the government to exclude black immigrants. Um, an editorial in the Tribune on the same day as uh, that vote was passed accused Canada of being too lax in opening her doors. 
It said, while there are many admirable qualities about the colored man, it is undoubtedly a fact that the Negro and the white man do not pull well together in relations of equality. And however harsh it may seem, the resolution of the Winnipeg Board of Trade voices popular sentiment with respect to the influx of Negro settlers from the United States. This is still just 200 of them, right? Um, yeah. Well, in this in this group, yeah. yes. And, like, overall, probably like, around 1,000 people. Yeah. Which is, is very small compared, compared to, to like, the, the influx of other people coming. Like, oh, the look huge at influx of immigrants that we Winnipeg had. Winnipeg growth around this time is going up from, like, what, 10,000 to 20,000 in a matter of years? Yes. And by, you know, by 1920 to, like, 200,000, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so, the Canadian government takes a kind of bizarre tack here. Dude... The Canadian government taking a bizarre approach to a problem? <laughs> what? So what they do is they sent doctors to Oklahoma to spread the idea that black people could not survive the climate in Canada. <laughs> what? Right? This is this is bizarre. Now, I hope I don't have to address the fact that that is obviously not true, right? <laughs> there is not, in fact, a racial difference in how we experience climate. No. Like, if you're used to a certain temperature... It is easier to live there. Yes. For sure. But there's not, because of the color of your skin, better tolerance to heat or cold. Yeah. Um, so G.W. Miller, who was a black American doctor hired by the Canadian government, wrote in the Oklahoma Guide that people should not sacrifice what they had for a place that is desolate, frigid, unsettled, unknown, and to which they are climatically unfamiliar and financially unfit. Okay, I just want to stop, because the propaganda they're putting out to sell land... Isn't that wild? ...is that it's nice and the weather's great, and then they're like, wait, no, it's not great. Don't think about coming here. Literally, the other one said the perfect climate. That's such a big pivot. Yeah. He said, it will cost your life to live one winter in Canada. That seems untrue. I mean, could happen, I guess, but, but like... But, like, assuming you are, like, a skilled farmer and can build a house, you'll probably be okay. You'll probably be okay. Um... House of the House of Commons also freaks out. Of course, of course, with one MP compl- uh, proclaiming that black settlers would swarm the country, and proceeding to say more things that I'm not comfortable saying. Extremely fair. I do not yeah. blame you. Um, again, still quite a small number of immigrants. Uh, yeah, causing all of this, right? Um, now, on. August 12th of 1911, Frank Oliver, the Minister of the Interior, drafts an order in council prohibiting, for a period of one year, quote, any immigrant belonging to the Negro race, which race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. So this is based on that 1910 Immigration Act, right? It's so strange they're really leaning into the climate thing specifically. Uh, Yeah, did they just think like, oh, here's the loophole. Here's the straw they can desperately grasp at. Yeah. Um... This is also weird and very annoying because as recently as March of that same year, Frank Oliver had outright denied in the House of Commons an accusation that immigrants were being excluded due to their race. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Um, this was also, though, repealed two months after it was passed due to worries about trade relations with the U.S. Okay. So essentially because of that and also potentially because the liberals are voted yeah. out not very long after this. Yeah. There never really is, like, an official law excluding yeah. black immigrants. But a lot of that would then be up to the immigration agents of the border, right? Absolutely, yes. So instead, uh, Canadians resorted to unofficial exclusion mm-hmm. tactics. So all ads in black newspapers were pulled. 
Um, in addition to those doctors who were mm -hmm. sent, two immigration officials were sent to Oklahoma to discourage immigration. Just to talk about how cold it is. I guess. Um, it's so weird because, like, to some people they're saying, like, oh, it's so cold. You shouldn't even. It's so awful. You wouldn't like it. It's really bad here. And don't then, come. Like, and then, like, down the block they're like, you should come to Canada. It's so amazing. You don't even need to wear a jacket most of the time. <laughs> there are no mosquitoes. <laughs> Never. <laughs> the road's immaculate. Schools, churches, railways, all super close. No you fear. will not have to travel hours. <laughs> um, also, the Commissioner of Immigration for Western Canada began giving a fee to the medical inspector at Emerson for every black immigrant he rejected. <sighs> so, that, I mean, that's pretty blatant, right? Yeah. So, unfortunately, these tactics were very effective, mm -hmm. and very few black farmers or homesteaders immigrated to Canada after around 1912. Yeah. Um, now, just in case we start thinking this is purely anti-immigrant sentiment, here's mm -hmm. a quote that I pulled about um, immigration overall from the Tribune. The immigration inrush from the South to Emerson is just getting nicely started, and every day now sees an increase in the number of desirable settlers. Ah, desirable being a fun red flag word there yes and in this uh in that particular piece they talked about a guy who came with fifteen thousand dollars and his wife and nine children and how happy they were that he was here great yeah i'm so happy for them <laughs> all right so having gone through that um i think it makes a little more sense now why william beale is um, kind of like an anomaly? I yes, guess? an anomaly. I was going to say an oddity, then I was like, no, that's that's like a negative way to put it. <laughs> and that's not what I want to yeah. call him. But yeah, something of an anomaly um, in a couple of different ways. So he was born in 1874 in Massachusetts. And I called William Beale a black homesteader at the front of the episode because mm -hmm. that's certainly how he was perceived within the community of Big Woody, where he eventually lived in the Swan River Valley area. Okay. Um, and I don't know if that's still even a term anyone uses for that area. Big Woody? I don't know. That's, it's a little <laughs> silly, right? Yeah. Um, but his racial identity is actually somewhat ambiguous. Okay. So this is a bit of a weird thing to talk about, but yeah. like, bear with me. It, it is somewhat relevant. Um, so his parents were, uh, his father was Charles Beale and his mother was Loretta Freeman. So okay. Freeman was a fairly common name taken by, um, uh, black families after the Civil War. Yeah. Okay. Um, on William's birth certificate under color, it's actually listed as white, however. Oh. So his siblings also each had different racial identities listed on their birth certificates. Oh. So one was labeled black, another as mulatto, and uh, the fourth sibling as African. Okay. So, I mean, there are a variety of reasons why these kinds of record keeping yeah. things happen, but um, it's also worth noting that their father, Charles Beale, worked as a book agent and a lecturer, and um, the family owned a home in what was apparently an all-white neighborhood at the time in Everett. Oh, interesting. So, essentially, there's some evidence that the Beale family may have, at least at, like, some points in their collective family history, lived as a white-passing family. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, if you're not familiar with the term, um, to pass as white essentially means that a person from a different racial background is perceived as white, yeah. right? So it can be unintentional, right? Just mm -hmm. simply a result of how a person looks. Um, but especially in like the early 20th century, it could also be an intentional practice carried out to avoid racial prejudice, yeah. right? Um, yeah, so 
just to say, like, as a white woman, 100% not my place to define yeah. who is and is not black. Um, and, of course, there are no definitive answers because race is a thing humans made up. Yeah. Um, but what's just worth noting here in William Beale's story is just that the U.S. and Canada operated according to what's often called, like, the one-drop rule. Yeah. When it came to racial identity, which is to say that both legally and socially... A person of combined black and white ancestry was generally considered to be black. Mm -hmm. And this forced categorization could make life and identity very complicated mm -hmm. for people of mixed race. Yeah. And the reason this is significant to this story is that while we don't know what first brought William Beale to Canada, there were persistent rumors that the family felt that he was too dark-skinned. Oh. And were, like, either embarrassed by him or worried for him and yeah. essentially sent him away. Oh. So, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Um, it's terribly sad, of course, yeah. if it is. I think he, in some ways, kind of stoked these rumors throughout mm -hmm. his life, just based on kind of vague statements that he made. Oh. But, um, yeah, could also be totally untrue. Yeah. We don't know. Um, in any case, though, the Beale family um, eventually moved to Minneapolis mm -hmm. after William's mother died in 1880, and Charles got remarried to an English woman named Alicia. Um, we don't know too much about what William was doing during yeah. this exact period. He definitely had some schooling. Yeah. Um, though he talked later in his life about his unhappiness at not having had, like, a more formal, yeah. uh, substantial education. Um, we do kind of catch up with him around 1900. He was living with his father in Minneapolis and working at a sawmill as an engineer. And in 1902, he moved into his own apartment in Minneapolis. Now, it seems that around this time... William was demoted from engineer to laborer. Okay. Yeah, so we don't know why, yeah. but um, we don't know why, but that may also have been a factor in his immigration. Yeah. It's also possible that he just saw one of the many immigration ads. And thought the climate there seems great and yes. not like it is in <laughs> Minneapolis. Yes, and Manitoba's government was heavily focusing its ads into Minneapolis yeah. as well. Also, a bunch of the sawmills had, like, Canadian wings or, like, yeah. Canadian arms, so it's possible that he just, like, was like, I don't know, seems interesting yeah. up there. Um, in any case, by 1906, William Beale was in Swan River Valley, working seasonally as an engineer at a sawmill. Okay. I did try to find a record of, like, his land crossing. Unfortunately, I couldn't. Yeah, well. Um, you know, we haven't kept all the records, I yeah. suppose. Um, his immigration is somewhat unique, though, in that he came on his own. That's actually pretty weird. Okay. Like, to come from yeah. the U.S. Most homesteaders, especially, I guess he's not a homesteader yet, but... They would come with, like, a family unit. Yes. Yeah. Black immigrants, especially, often came with, like, a family yeah. or even a larger group, right? Um, so I feel like it must have probably been pretty lonely at first. Yeah. But he did make friends pretty quickly. And in 1906, a friend asked him to spend his winter on his homestead. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So one of the coolest things about Beale's story is that we have some of his life in his own words. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is really neat and, and quite rare, right? Mm -hmm. He wrote an approximately just like eight-page handwritten autobiography okay. that has sort of like the broad strokes yeah. of his life, which is really cool. So of this story, he tells us, We went out there to fix up the house and things because he had a wife to share his good fortune with him. The scrub was so dense out there that we had to climb a tree to see much of his possessions. I had originally come from the city, and I thought a man must have an awful grudge against a woman to take her out in the woods like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but he eventually decided that he enjoyed the community in the area and that it was not so bad when one got used to it. <laughs> Which is probably, you know, yeah. I feel like often how I feel about Manitoba. Or the outdoors. Or the outdoors. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I can... I feel like I can relate to, like, what it would feel like to be in the city and then have to go out to the country. <laughs> and see nature. Yeah. Awful. <laughs> um, at the sawmill, most of the men who he was working with were homesteaders and were constantly, like, talking and joking about their homesteads. So this and a book that he read, he doesn't tell us the name, oh. unfortunately, inspired him to try his hand at homesteading. Okay. I like this. He was, like, almost, like, peer pressured. He I feel just like wants to fit in and do yeah. the homesteading jokes with his buddies. <laughs> Totally. He talks about like jokes that they told about homesteading. And do you have like, any of the actual jokes, sir? Oh my god. Um, I do. I sent you that one that didn't make a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah, you did. Um, hang on. Let me see if I can find it. Tell us a homesteading joke. There was one of the men that they used to joke a great deal, and someone said to him once, "You haven't got any broke on your homestead yet, have you?" And he said, "Oh yes, I've got half an acre broke." <laughs> that's that's the whole joke. joke. I don't understand what it means. I guess just he didn't have very much land cleared. I'm assuming it's a joke about breaking land and not having money. I, d I don't know. But like, or just like half an acre is not very much. much. So I don't know. It's funny that he didn't do that much work. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, apparently these jokes were very tempting and caused him to decide to have a homestead. He wanted to understand. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the summer season at the mill that year, he goes to the land uh, office and applies for a permit. Okay. In 1908, he gets his homestead, which is 10 miles from Swan River. He describes it as, It was very discouraging looking then. All heavy bush or rather dense trees like a forest, and I had to clear and break 15 acres in three years. There were no roads, of course, of any kind. Then, too, there was the woody river between it and the town and no bridge. I had to cut a road in to haul material in to build my first shack. Um... It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Sometimes I, like, I try to imagine it when I'm, like, you know, if you're ever just, like, down by the river and you yeah. see all the, like, dense brush and stuff, I'm like, oh, to have to clear that sounds like a nightmare. Oh, awful, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, he chose a homestead about half a mile from a sawmill friend of his, okay. uh, Gus Johnson. Johnson kind of has his own crazy story. Yeah. Um, he was apparently a Swedish sailor, and he jumped ship in Montreal and hid in a brickyard until the ship left. Why? To, to... I to guess get off? to escape his obligations of being on the ship, I guess. I don't know. I guess he had like signed a contract and didn't want to do it anymore and then fled west. All right. I mean, it seems like if you're going to hide in Montreal, there's lots of places to go than the brickyard, but good for I him. I guess. Um, though apparently he was kind of known for tall tales, so it's like unclear if this is actually <laughs> what true. happened. You may just come over. You want to see a picture of Gus yes. Johnson? Let's see. This is a picture that William Beale took. Oh, that's fun. Here he is with his pig. <laughs> he's got a big mustache and he's sitting on the ground by his pig. He looks yeah. very surly. <laughs> he's like a little little guy with a big mustache. And maybe like the kind of guy who would jump off a ship. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you say that he looks surly because that's that's pretty spot on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they were like, in some ways, similarly, like they were both around the same age. They yeah. were both single when they met. Um, but Beale was like very quiet and calm and polite. Yeah. Um, one of his neighbors said, he never uttered a profanity stronger than spawn of evil. <laughs> Which is very gentle. Yeah. Um, Gus, on the other hand, was like loud and hot tempered and prone <laughs> to picking fights. So you're kind of this like odd couple. Um, now, William Beale had hoped to hire other people 
Okay. To break his homestead while he continued at the sawmill. Yeah. He unfortunately found out that's, like, not really how it works. No, no, I feel like once you get the homestead, the expectation is you do the homesteading. Unfortunately. That's the worst, right? Yeah. Um, Basically, though, what happened, the reason he couldn't do that is not because he didn't have the money, but because, like, everyone else in the area were also homesteaders, essentially. So they wouldn't, they didn't have the time to go to yeah, someone they're, else's they're yard Yeah, they're busy work. with their own land, yeah. right? So he more or less gives up for, like, a couple years. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So he clears enough space for a little home and a path to that home, and then makes, like, very few efforts to clear the land more than that. <laughs> How much was he supposed to clear to keep the land with the permit? So 15 acres over three years. Okay. Over the first two years, he clears three acres. <laughs> so he's so, in a he's, so in he's a rough pulling spot. an Alex, we might say, or he waits the last minute and then has to pan it, clear another, like, what, 12 acres of land? Another 12 acres of land in the next year. Yeah. Not great. So, like, I mean, that's not nothing. Yeah. Still, still a lot of work to clear yeah. three acres of land, but, like, far less than he needed. Yeah. Um, and so what he does instead is really interesting, and okay. this is why I love William Beale. Um, he begins amassing a huge personal library. Okay. Yeah. So he gets catalogs from publishers and starts ordering hundreds and hundreds of books. Oh. Yeah. Just for fun? Yep. Okay. Because this is what he wanted. Um, so here's a quote. He ordered everything from the books of the Bible to the scientific theorists of the day, from Shakespeare and other great classics to contemporary writings. Oh, wow. So all over the map, too. Yeah. He was very widely read, um, would read on philosophy and astronomy and, like, like to tell people about this stuff. One thing that I think is quite complimentary is <laughs> someone said that he'd only share knowledge with you if you seemed interested. Oh. I feel like we can all aspire to that. <laughs> Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, Karina Vernon, who's a prof at the U of T and who's written like pretty extensively on William Beale, mm -hmm. at least compared to any other historians, yeah. um, she wrote a really lovely description of how she imagines his library. Yeah. Um, so this is a quote from from her thesis. She wrote. What would it have been like to come upon Beale's library out in the dense, heavy bush of Manitoba's Swan River Valley? And what would it have been like to enter the unassuming log shack, the kind typically built by pioneers with a tar paper roof, mud floor, moss stopping the chinks in the walls, and see the shock of a complete library? It must have been somewhat dim inside, the light coming through one pane of glass at the front of the house, and most likely it smelled of freshly peeled bark and earth. I don't know, I really like that It's a that very quaint picture of... Yes. His little house and his little library. Yeah. Uh, he also had a number of other hobbies that kept him busy as well when he wasn't at the sawmill. And when also... he wasn't avoiding doing his <laughs> mandatory <laughs> homesteading work. Yeah, when he was pretending that this was not a thing that he needed to do. <laughs> um, so he had a special interest in astronomy. He had many books on the subject. They talk okay. about how, like, his neighbors talked about how, like, they'd stop and be like, oh, hey, look at that star up there. It's like this star. And he'd be like, no, 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 that's actually like this other star. <laughs> Um, he built himself a homemade telescope out of stovepipe and tin cans. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how well that would work, but it's pretty cool. Wouldn't you need, like, glass for I think a lens? there must have been a lens yeah. as well. I just Otherwise, didn't... it's kind of like a tube. Otherwise, it's just a tube. I think there must have been a lens. It just didn't say what the lens was from. Huh. Okay. Um, a few... it's funny because a few people said that he, like, wasn't as good with his hands as he was with his head, but I think what mostly they meant is he wasn't very good at farming because <laughs> he can build a telescope that's pretty impressive yeah he built a telescope he was apparently a very skilled wood woodworker he built a house yeah he, he built a house didn't want to farm 
hang on, I'll show you a picture of, I know this is, unfortunately, he was quite the photographer and this is not the best medium to show those, yeah. but anything I talk about, I'll like put on the website. Yeah. Um, this is a little thing that he made out of wood. What is it? Okay, so it's a little box, and when you open it, this wooden snake inside comes out and, like, strikes. Oh, that's so cute! Isn't that cute? I think he made it for, like, a local kid. Uh, for a, As a Christmas gift for Jimmy Chegwin. Oh. Yes, very sweet. Um, Yeah, so he was very good with uh, woodworking. Apparently his home was crammed to the rafters with books, photography equipment, and these woodworking projects. So he just had a lot of hobbies. Yes. Alex, is. do you like this guy because he sounds a lot like you? <laughs> Maybe. I do have a lot of hobbies. And a lot yeah. of, and they take up a lot of space. <laughs> and you also don't like yard work. This is true. Who likes yard work? <laughs> no, no one likes yard work. Um, yeah, apparently he'd make, like, intricate handmade furniture for his neighbors. And oh, he wow. often, he often, like, traded them just for whatever they had yeah. instead of for money, like, at one point, he traded, like, a desk for a Victrola that a okay. neighbor had so he could listen to music. Um, apparently, his shack was so full that he, uh, this is a quote, just had an alley from his door to his chair. <laughs> and that's all you need. <laughs> that's all you need. The rest of it can be full. Cool. I also relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, at some point, he even ordered parts and made his own radio. Oh, wow. I think he got to be quite good with that kind of thing as well. Later on, he was making, like, electric fences for farmers in the area. Oh, wow. Using, like, spare parts. Okay, good for him. Yeah. Um, now, the contrast to this is he was actively neglecting, like, the important, like, survival tasks. <laughs> yeah, like farming and eating. and <laughs> Yes. So, this is my absolute favorite story. A neighbor dropped in one day when it was 30 below on yeah. a winter day. Um, to see Beale and found him in bed reading. The fire was out and the house was stone cold. Yep. So this neighbor named George, he offered to light the fire, but Beale says there's no wood. So George <laughs> is like, oh, okay, I'll just like go grab some outside. And Beale is like, no, I mean, I didn't cut any. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so George has to go outside, cut down some wood and bring it in to light the fire. <laughs> That seems like a basic survival skill for a Manitoba winter yes. at the time, is to just have wood on hand. <laughs> you would think so. Um, like, he just didn't have any prepared in he case had no, cold. He had no wood, and apparently, like, doesn't seem like he was planning to get he any. He lived there for a while at this point, right? Like, he was aware that winter was coming. Oh, yes. <laughs> just didn't care. He was under a blanket with a book. He was busy. <laughs> had other things to do. <laughs> Um, I really like this quote because it makes it seem, like, whimsical rather than ridiculous. This, um, this neighbor said, Imagine a man going to bed in the middle of winter without even a stick of wood in the house. Just imagine a man being that content. <laughs> <laughs> He's just so happy with his book. So happy with his book. Okay, now, unfortunately, tragedy does befall him yeah. in 1911. Um, a fire destroys his home. Oh, no. Including his library. So, yeah, super sad. Mm -hmm. Um, he doesn't tell us, like, in so many words in his autobiography how he felt about the fire, but he does spend almost an entire page of this, like, fairly short memoir, memoir talking, like, kind of incredulously about homesteaders who used fire to clear their land. Okay. So here, I'll read this to you. Yeah. He said, I was amazed by the eagerness of some settlers to start fires and let them run. They said, get the scrub cleared and get the, count the country opened up. These fires, however, always hurt somebody, and besides, it was burning up wood that would be useful for fuel and for building, too. Many of the first builders were of buildings were of logs. I told them they would want this wood someday, 
they did not realize the advantage of having a patch of woodland on every homestead, and would have been satisfied if they could if they could have changed the whole country into bare prairie. So, like, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it does seem like he's like... Some land-clearing fire hit his house, maybe? Yes, it sounds like that's what happened, and he doesn't sound very happy about that. No. No. I mean, I wouldn't you, be either. You wouldn't be, but I feel like he's kind of like... Well, the amount of time and money he must have invested into that book collection alone. Yes, yeah, and to simply say, like, these fires always hurt somebody yeah. and not, like, these jackasses actively burned my home. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Very diplomatic. Um, this also must have been a, a fairly difficult year for him overall. His father, Charles, died the same year. Oh, wow. Um, leading to a dispute over inheritance as mm. well, because he hadn't left a will. So William had been paying the property taxes on his father's home okay. for, like, the previous several yeah. years. And so he essentially felt it was his to sell. Yeah. But his siblings prevented him from doing so. Oh. So it becomes yeah. this kind of, like, legal yeah. battle, which often happens, right, yeah. with wills. But um, eventually the property was divided amongst the children mm -hmm. by the court. It's worth noting that while he did keep in touch with at least one of his sisters, he, like, he never saw his family after well, coming yeah. to Canada. Um, in any case, though, after the fire, William turns himself more seriously, finally, to the task of clearing his land. And by the end of the year, he had managed to clear 13 acres. Wow. So this is very much the Alex approach. I called it right away. Yeah. <laughs> Wait until the last minute. Wait until the last minute. And clear all your land. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe the fire helped. Yeah, there's less, I guess, things for him to read and get distracted with. Yeah. Yeah, there was someone who said that, like, oh, maybe it was a blessing disguise. I'm like, no. no. <laughs> Sad. Um, so over the summer, while he's at the sawmill, he also hires a neighbor named Clarence Abramson uh, to help clear land and to plant and harvest hay while Beale worked at the sawmill. Okay. Um, oh, I think I might have a picture of Clarence. Oh, here we go. Here's Clarence Abramson standing in a field. It's just a man in a field. It's a man in a field. <laughs> he's outstanding Can't in describe field. it. <laughs> Any better than that. No, I'm sorry. Every every other family homesteading photo is like that. It is. It's a yeah. man and their crops. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, so by fall, uh, 16 acres had been cleared. Wow. So above and beyond, Sabrina. Uh, do you, one above? <laughs> <laughs> Technically true. <laughs> um, so he goes to apply for his patent that December. Unfortunately, there had been a mix-up. Um, you may remember at the beginning of this yeah. episode, we said usually the requirement was to clear 30 acres. Yeah. Not 15. Mm-hmm. It turns out that was what he was meant to have done. <laughs> oh, no! Yes. So he gets there and they're like, you need to have cleared 15 more acres by right now. Oh, God. <laughs> so fortunately, the inspector who came out to look at the land granted him a concession due to the density of the scrub. Okay. So he doesn't lose his homestead, yeah. at least. And it sounds like this was, like, pretty common to get concessions. Yeah. Um, some homesteaders even, like, bribed the inspectors. Yeah. To... I mean, I guess you don't really want the people you, like, convinced no. to come out here to, like, what, lose their farm and then go to the city? Totally, right? Like, you don't want to deal with, like, this guy's already cleared 16 acres. Are yeah. you really going to, like, kick him out? Yeah. I don't think that often happens. Yeah. Probably sometimes if you didn't do anything. If you didn't bribe the inspector. If you don't bribe the inspector, which, you know, yeah. your fault. <laughs> um, We're pro-bribery here. Yeah. Gray history. <laughs> Only in homesteading context. <laughs> um, yeah, this so episode so is brought to you by the Homesteading Council. 
come to Winnipeg and set up a homestead. It's nice here and not cold, and the water is a normal level. No flooding. <laughs> I've never. What's a flood? Never heard of her. Yeah, my basement didn't fill up twice in the last week. <laughs> um, so in 1912, um, having uh, cleared this land, Beale plants his first garden. <laughs> now he has been there for four years. Yeah, no. I... <laughs> so he's um, just like what buying food from other people. Yeah. yeah all yeah, right. I mean, he's working at the sawmill. He's yeah. like. As an engineer, he's making decent money. Yeah. And I think, like, also it sounds like didn't live all that lavishly, yeah. aside from his books and stuff. So, like, when he bought the homestead to relate to people and their jokes and then didn't do any of the things they're joking about. <laughs> hey, you know, move. you know the joke when they were, like, joking, like, making fun of the yeah. guy who hadn't cleared any land? Do you think he was just talking about himself? Maybe. <laughs> Everyone was making fun of me at the office, and I won't yeah. admit it in my autobiography. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he plants his first garden. Unfortunately, it's a cold summer and he's only able to grow potatoes. Oh, no. He was very proud of his efforts, though. <laughs> That's good. He tells us so. <laughs> um, also, one of his oxen die, um, oh, no. as does one of his neighbors. So they end up, like, pairing them up and sharing yeah. them. I think he's probably talking about his friend Gus Johnson yeah. here. By the way, this is kind of a weird side thing, but it sounds like neither of them were, or, like, both of them were bad with animals. So Which it's is... good that they're sharing animals. The two best men for that job. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe together they could keep oxen alive. <laughs> it sounds like William could barely keep himself alive. Yeah. There's like another story where he like accidentally let a couple of horses go and like, yeah. This man was not meant to be a homesteader. No, it was not the job for him. But he managed it. I mean, he didn't <laughs> die. Um, But like, in any case, very few people were actually doing like actual farming yeah. in the area at that point. Um, it wasn't until around the 1920s that enough land was cleared to do it properly. Yeah. So in the 1910s, in the period where we are right now, most people had just like kind of personal gardens, yeah. like enough for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And then would raise like either cattle or yeah. sheep for the income. Okay. Yeah. Um, unless you're bad with animals. Unless you're bad with animals, in which case you don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think he, as far as I know, never tried to like yeah. keep cattle or whatever. Probably for the best. Yeah. Um, so he finally receives his homestead in 1916. Okay. So a few years later yeah. than he was meant to, and he probably received, like, further extensions along yeah. the way since it took a while. Um, upon receiving his patent, he gives up farming almost immediately. <laughs> and instead, he begins renting out his land to sharecroppers. He's just like, no, I'm done. Yeah. He's like, I tried it. It wasn't for me. <laughs> I've got my shack. This is all, I, all need. I need. Yeah. Um, so Beale becomes, um, an integral and accepted part of this community for the most part, but he did face racism. Yeah. Um, some of these stories, again, are not going to be fun mm -hmm. to hear. Um, notably in 1914, um, at the beginning of the First World War, he wanted to join the Army Medical Corps. He okay. had long dreamed of being, like, a medical doctor yeah. and hadn't had the chance to go mm -hmm. to school for that. Um, However, they told him that he would need to go with, like, a segregated black troop. Oh, yeah. And he, he refused. He said, no, I won't do that. Okay. So he stayed behind. Um, but he did face racism um, locally as well. Um, so one such instance was at what was known as a box social. Okay. So um, this is the description from um, one of the community members. They said, at these gatherings, the men bid on box lunches that had been prepared by the women. Each lunch was auctioned off to the highest bidder, who then shared it with the person who had made it. At one of these socials, the woman whose, Billy's, who, whose lunch Billy had bought 
was apparently so embarrassed at having to share her lunch with him that she sat with her back to him, eating oh. with him, and she never said a word, and her face was red as a beet all the time. Oh. She felt embarrassed because that was something new, like we'd never had a dark person take part until he started. So yeah, I think, like... It's just sad. It is. And I think there probably were times when he yeah. certainly felt, like, left out. Yeah. Um... Some children also apparently teased him for, like, his curly hair and the color oh. of his skin. Um, it does sound, though, like most of his neighbors made a pretty active effort to make him feel included. They yeah. talked about, like, things like square dances, making sure that he got to dance with everyone. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, they were willing enough to stop by and make sure he wasn't freezing to death in the winter. Yeah, yeah. I think for the most part he was accepted, but certainly, like, there were difficult yeah. times. Um, one woman recalled that her sister dared her to call Beale a racial slur, mm -hmm. um, which she did after which her mother slapped her. Oh my god. Yeah. So, I mean, at yeah. least, at least the mom was like, no, nope. we don't do that here. Yeah. Um, this is probably the, the worst incident though. In the late twenties, um, there was a trail on Billy's property that was being used to pass through the area. So yeah. There was like no real, yeah. there was like no real road in the area. So he asked the municipality to construct a proper road, which yeah. they voted to do. So he closed the gate to his trail. Yeah. Um, the day after he had closed it, a teenager was out for a drive, um, came and tried to open the gate. Um, they got into a confrontation, which resulted in the boy hitting Beale with a post and knocking him out. Oh my god. Yeah. Apparently the RCMP were called, and one officer who had been called out to investigate called Beale a lying N-word. Oh. Yeah. So Beale's neighbors, though, to their credit, at least, were outraged. Apparently, one woman dared the officer to call her the same and threatened to hit him with a frying pan. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. 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 So he tended to shrug off such things as much as was possible, but he did confide to a friend his frustration, feeling that his race had handicapped him. That's a yeah. quote. And um, particularly in that he had wanted to be a doctor and yeah. hadn't been able to. Um. And I think that this, like, inability to pursue some of his grander dreams may have been part of the reason that he took such a, like, avid interest in books and self-learning. Yeah. And, you know, teaching himself all the things that he hadn't yeah. been able to learn formally. Um, and he did wind up learning quite a bit about medicine. So he read medical textbooks. He kept a medical kit in case oh, of emergencies. Wow. Um, he even took correspondence courses in medicine. Um, and so he actually helped the local doctor with inoculation of the community. Oh, yeah. Cool. So against like diphtheria yeah. in 1915, and then again in the 1920s during a smallpox outbreak. Oh, cool. Yeah, and apparently he was really good with kids. Awesome. Like one little girl talked about, well, she was a woman when she yeah. talked about it, but she was a little girl at the time. She talked about how she hid behind the sewing machine oh. when he came to give the shots, and he had like a little bag of homemade candy and coaxed <laughs> her out and gave her the shot. Oh. Apparently he often had like homemade candy on hand for kids. <laughs> That's very he sweet. He sounds very sweet. Um, and yeah, he was like a big part of this community that mm -hmm. was like growing up around him, right? Um, and was like very generous and I think like charitable, not just in the sense that he like spent money, but in ways yeah. that really touched people, mm -hmm. like that were really thoughtful. Um, so for example, um, he had some neighbors who were too poor to go to this kind of like big annual yeah. event where there were fireworks. And so he went out and bought a bunch of fireworks and brought them back. It's really nice. Yeah, so that they could like set them off on their property. Yeah, so a bunch of stuff like that. And yeah. he'd like apparently give kids like impromptu lessons on things that interested oh. them. 
Um, he also became the first secretary treasurer of the Big Woody School Board and held the post more or less consistently until like 1950. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so while he did begin slowly rebuilding his own burned library yeah. over the years, more importantly, he helped to create a library in the school. Oh, awesome. Yeah. A library for all the kids, which is really sweet. It seems like a perfect thing for him to do. <laughs> yes. Um, in 1922, he also helped to create a literary society that met every two weeks at the Big Woody School. Oh. Um, they had poetry, plays, and debates, which he moderated. Oh. Apparently, he didn't like to take part in the debates. He just liked to... <laughs> well, that would involve having a firm opinion. Yeah. He just politely sit back. Yes. <laughs> um, he also took up this big interest in photography, like I mentioned, so took um, many photographs of his neighbors kind of going about their days. Yeah. They're really neat photographs, like... Um, a lot of photographs from this period are very, like, posed. They're, like, in studios. Yeah. And he was taking photos just kind of, like, outside. Which is cool. Yeah, that's a really, like, valuable historic resource to yes, have years later. Yes, 100%. Like, we have one picture of him. There may be... Oh, no, there are a couple. But, like, he only took one real self-portrait. Yeah. The rest of his photos are of, like, his neighbors just, like, living yeah. their lives, which is really neat. Yeah, and I'll post some of those on the website for sure. Yeah. Um, oh, here. Maybe I'll show you my favorite one. Yeah, please do. It's an old guy and his dog. Oh. <laughs> it's just an old guy reading a book, sitting with a dog. Yep. With nice. a pipe. Um, he was described as a grumpin' old man. <laughs> grumpin'? Or maybe grouchin'. It was one of those two. <laughs> like it's a verb? Yes. <laughs> a grouchin' old man. Bob Dennison. With his dog. <laughs> nice. I also really like this one. I think that one's quite pretty. Oh, that one is. It's kind of a woman with like a parasol and a big hat in a bunch of trees. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he was, like, an amateur photographer, but, like... They're nice pictures. Yeah, they're really yeah. nice. They're, they're nice photographs. He even had, like, um, some stereoscopic images, oh, which cool. is really cool. He also, apparently, his um, favorite activity was to go visiting. Nice. I relate this to is, this. This is where you relate to William Beale. <laughs> I also like to go visiting. Yes. This is a thing I would never do. <laughs> when I was a kid, what I would do with my dad is I would follow him around when we went to go visit his friends, and I would just hang out with my dad and his farmer friends, and that was a lot of my childhood. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what he was essentially doing. Um, apparently, he tended to prefer the company of the women in the yep. area. He'd often just, like, sit in the kitchen with them, exchanging recipes. Um, he even took up dressmaking for a time. Oh, cool. Not super successfully, yeah. but, like, pretty neat. Um, apparently when his old friend Gus married, he made fast friends with Gus's wife, Louie. No. Yes. Um, apparently Gus was sometimes annoyed because, like, Gus and the other men would be, like, outside working on something or other, and William would just be, like, in the kitchen chatting with his <laughs> wife. <laughs> he also, especially in his later years, apparently just dropped by and took a nap sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> says in his later years he would fall asleep in the middle of a sentence then wake up and exclaim oh i must have dozed off and then continue <laughs> the conversation <laughs> wow yeah that's it's very sweet that sounds like my uncles <laughs> i mean it sounds like many old farmers <laughs> um you, sometimes you gotta nap yeah doesn't matter what's going on he's gonna take a quick snooze <laughs> um the only kind of real possibility of romance that I came across seems to have been with a young woman named Dora, who was a pianist and a singer who was blind. Um, okay. It's unclear to me, though, if he was, like, in love with her or if it was more just that he was, like, fascinated yeah. by and enamored with her. In either case, she didn't return his affections, and eventually she ended up marrying a piano tuner who was also blind, which oh. is a pretty perfect yeah. match. Um. So he continued to make his living at the sawmill until around 1930. Um, 
after which he um, just kind of hung out on his homestead, essentially. Hey, it sounds perfect for him. Yeah. Um, in the 1940s, he was ready to sell his homestead. Yeah. Um, now, the Depression had taken a toll on the community. Yeah. So he sells his homestead partly for cash, but then also partly just for, like, groceries and yeah. such at the buyer's shop. So apparently for, like, years afterwards, he would just, like, go and get groceries and, like, put it up against the debt that this guy owed him. Okay. Yeah, and he sold it also with an agreement that Beale could continue to live on the land as long as he wanted. Okay. Yeah, so he stayed there. He yeah. just didn't own it anymore. Um, He lived quite a lean lifestyle in his later years. Apparently, he would come in and buy, like, the tiniest amounts of tea. Like, they'd have to, like, <laughs> break up a packet of tea for him because he only wanted 10 cents worth and stuff. All right. I mean, he wasn't really making money no, that's anymore, true, right? Yeah. So. Um, and eventually, um, in the 1950s, he began spending the winters together with Gus Johnson at Eventide Home in the Paw. Okay. Uh, they were both unchanged. Apparently, <laughs> Beale was pleasant and quiet and spent his days reading or visiting friends who lived nearby. And Gus was known as a rabble rouser and would sometimes cause fights between other residents by spreading rumors. <laughs> <laughs> like, you tell one of them that this guy said something yeah. about you. And so it Gus true. is, like, roaming around actively causing problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny and... they were such close friends considering how, yes. like, quiet William seems to have been in comparison. And I wonder, and it sounds like Gus was, like, often annoyed with him, too, but I think <laughs> Beale was probably just so, like, diplomatic and calm that he was just like, okay, okay, you're annoyed with me for hanging out in the kitchen, that's fine. <laughs> for not helping with the work again. Yeah. <laughs> um, he did also continue staying at his homestead in the summers as long as he could until he was, like, well into his 80s. Wow. Like, almost 90. Um, eventually, uh, died at the age of 94 in the paw, uh, wow. at Eventide Home. Um. That is a ripe old age. Yes. Yeah. For a I mean, homesteader in the 1900s. For, for, by all accounts, not a very good homesteader also. <laughs> no, this is also true. Who wasn't super great at taking care of himself? Yes. Managed to make it through books alone. <laughs> That's what we all aim for. Um, yeah, and what's really interesting, I think, about the story of William Beale is that he's sort of the exception that proves the rule in terms of, like, how poor a job of, we've done of recording Black history in yeah. this province. Right? Like, we know a lot about William Beale because he chronicled his own life yeah. through photographs and through this autobiography. And because some community historians in the 80s, um, whose book I will link to on the website, had the sense to go to the area and, like, ask around about him yeah. before those memories were lost. Those are things that happen very seldom. Yeah. It's extremely atypical. No, totally. Yeah. Um, and to exemplify that, even in 1929, the deputy minister for immigration reported that none of the original black pioneers who had settled in the Laurier days were still in the prairies. Oh, wow. So a claim which, I mean, we've just spent yeah. an hour talking about but, yeah. why that's incorrect. Yeah. So, like, the reporting is just not correct at any point. No. Yeah. And there's sort of this, like, willful forgetting. Yeah. To some extent of of black history in this province. And then also, um, uh, I would say in many cases, earned mistrust of, like, official archives and stuff. Yeah. Which have not always been a place that made, um, like, black memories and, you know, other yeah. types of memories feel welcome. Mm-hmm. So that's something for sure for us to work on as historians. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's the story of William Beale. It was a nice story. Thank you. Kind of. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's some there's some not so nice bits of it, but I suppose that's true of anyone's life, isn't yeah. it? Just a quirky old guy. Just a quirky old guy. Had a lot of books. 
Sounds a lot like you. <laughs> I hope that I I hope that I should be so lucky <laughs> to live to ninety four and have a grumpy old friend. Yeah. You're not grumpy enough, Sabrina. Yet. You never know. Okay. I expect you to do some more rabble rousing, please. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'm going to start some malicious rumors over the oh, summer. God. <laughs> Be my Gus Johnson. Sabrina's idea of like rabble rousing, though, was like changing the letters on a sign outside a beer vendor or something, right? Like... <laughs> I did do that once, yeah. Yeah, that was your big moment of rebellion that you've told me about. <laughs> I think, what what, did I make what it letters say? did you sign on a... It was like a lawyer's sign in town. I, I think it would say, like, want me to call this number or something. I don't know. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. I was proud of it. And then some teenagers came and wrote swear words, and the sign got taken down. Oh, they took it too far. The trick is you can't make it too gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line. All right, you want to tell people where they can find us? Yeah, I had the brilliant idea that I could uh, write it down. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Though also we do have the collecting conversations bit to oh, yes. put up. Yeah. So we've been doing um, a new segment called Collecting Conversations where Alex and I sit down with a local archivist or someone with a museum to talk about something they have in their collection. And uh, for May, we sat down with Sarah Ramsden with the City of Winnipeg Archives to talk about their new exhibit on the 1997 flood. So uh, my name is Sarah Ramsden. I'm the senior archivist at the City of Winnipeg Archives. Uh, I've been in this role since uh, 2015 and with the archives since uh, 2013. And uh, yeah, I'm here to talk about flood archives today, uh, especially a good topic to be on the agenda since it's the 25th anniversary of the 1997 flood uh, this yeah. year. It's interesting to be talking about like a historical event that, you know, a lot of people remember. Mm -hmm. um, including me, I have very vague memories of the 97 flood. Um, but you had mentioned to us that floods can be record-creating events. So can you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, for sure. Um, so to talk about the flood archives collection uh, at the City of Winnipeg Archives, it really all, uh, in a way, starts with uh, 1997 and the activities of the Flood Archives and Records Committee. So after the 1997 flood, this, the city took some time to reflect on lessons learned, and this included creating a committee, the Flood Records and Archives Committee, to collect, organize, and conserve records created by the city of Winnipeg as a result of the flood of 97. Uh, so they wanted to create a permanent record of events that transpired, as well as a record of the city's activities. And officials also said, and this is a quote from the project plan, that through this endeavor, it is hoped that an archival history of the flood crisis can be created that would be used for the edification of future generations of citizens, as well as for the basis of a plan of action that should a sim similar emergency occur in the future. So the goal was to work with departments uh, to collect these records and centralize them within the archives. Neat. Yeah. Uh, so the Flood Archives Collection, as it became known, uh, consists of three main areas. Uh, the first is records created by the City of Winnipeg and its departments. So things like news releases, emergency planning records, information packages given out to uh, evacuees, and, and lots of photos. Uh, the second is records collected from outside the city. Uh, so media clippings, books, reports from other levels of government. Um, and the third is actually an index of records already stored at the archives that deal with flood prior to 1997. Um, 
So they, they uh, also printed off the city's flood website. That's funny. I guess that's a new aspect of like 90s history. Hey, that wouldn't have um, existed with like previous events. <laughs> Exactly. And even like in one of the reports when they're talking about lessons learned, there's some, um, at one point they say like the internet is a really great place for sharing information. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So yeah. new and exciting. Yeah. And it was another uh, challenge for uh, archive staff here, uh, including like, uh, you know, archivists who, yeah. who've worked with the digital records uh, in the past, including like Elizabeth Ann Johnson and Jared Buckwald and uh, so they um, did some work to remove the digital files from the digital carriers, like the CDs, the floppies, uh, to put them on our uh, hard drives here to kind of back them up appropriately, and when necessary to convert the file format so that we can uh, read the files, because yeah. some, if I recall correctly, were like proprietary formats that were no longer oh, yeah. supported. Oh, man. Yeah. No, um, in an archive that I worked in last year, I absolutely had media that I had no way of playing. So it's it's for sure a problem of, yeah, how do we retain these like digital archives, right? Yeah, not a whole lot of digital archives from the 1950s flood, although we do like, digitize uh, yeah. the photos from that there time. There are great photos from that flood also. Yes, definitely. Like one of my my favorite scrapbooks is from the 1950 flood and that one's not online but you can see it in at the archives and it's it's primarily um, street views and a lot of residences and I, I feel like just kind of flipping through the pages it kind of does get you give you a feeling of walking down the streets of, of Winnipeg during uh, the flood and it gets a lot of views too often we're able to uh, connect people uh, who currently own that home yeah that is definitely like one of the most frequently asked questions is like do you have a photo of my home and I'm doing these renovations I want to restore it or I, I just would like you know I recently purchased this home do you have a uh, I think it's you know built in 1913 do you have any records of that and um, I, I do always ask like and or I investigate that angle of the, of the question, like, was it in a flooded area? Because if your home was yeah. in a flooded area, it's more likely that uh, we have a photo of, of it that survived, right? Because the huh. city doesn't really go out and create records for the purpose of creating records. Right. Um, there's always sort of a need that necessitates that record creating event, uh, which is why floods in a sense are these uh, record creating events and a lot of, uh, they give us a kind of a reason for documenting our surroundings and um, people uh, have a feeling like they live through something significant and hold on mm -hmm. to the records because of it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess on a normal day, you might not go and just take a picture of the front of your home, right? But if the first floor is underwater, that's uh, a little more interesting if nothing else. All of a sudden. Yeah, do you want to tell us um, what activities the archives are doing to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the 97 flood? Right, so uh, because all of this work was done to identify, collect, and, and preserve the records, we really did want to uh, bring them out and, and share that material uh, with the public in, in, in wider ways. Uh, so in addition to being able to uh, access uh, records at the archives, uh, we have some of the items on display right now uh, in the mayor's foyer at City Hall. 
so there's a couple of display cases um, there and we've I've brought out uh, photos from the 1997 uh, flood showing sandbag uh, dikes, community members and military personnel filling up sandbags, uh, flooded areas around the forks and the floodway. Um, and we also put in the display cases some of the ephemera that survived. So there's like mm. these little mini sandbags that high school students at uh, Sizzler High School uh, made and oh. uh, gave to the mayor's office. <laughs> like uh, how, how many are we talking? Like, like hmm, I'm showing you, but I'll, <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll say uh, like not, like not functional sandbags, yeah. like, <laughs> like four <laughs> centimeters, like wow. Okay, yeah. Six, that's cute. Uh, centimeters high. <laughs> they are very cute. They've got different designs on the oh. fronts and, and backs. Uh, so, well, actually on the front, they all say you know, 1997 flood with the, the design and on the backs, they say different things. So I think one of them is mud bag and the other one I remember is big mama. <laughs> that's, that's great really cute yeah and so we also have like a, a bumper sticker out there or maybe it's just a regular size sticker saying like we will win 97 flood and yeah and so cool, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of uh interesting stuff in there we definitely wanted to um put it out there because um it helps sort of frame a conversation and definitely um stirs our memories of the flood and, and uh, discussing it sort of keeps those memories alive, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we're also working on a digital exhibit that will put together flood-related records in the archives. So uh, in archives, we, we typically don't group things by subject matter, right? It's, it's all mm -hmm. grouped according to uh, creator and as we like to say in archives, like provenance, but like people often will just not ask us about record creators. They're more likely to ask about subject matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the digital exhibit is, um, it's intended to intellectually make that connection uh, between different collections uh, through link description. And so that, that's ultimately what we, what we want the flood archives exhibit to do. And it'll help people uh, navigate the archives to find uh, there's definitely an emphasis on photos we realize there's a huge interest in, in that um, mm -hmm. but it'll mm -hmm. link to other um, like it'll put other breadcrumbs for researchers yeah. uh, to, mm -hmm. to investigate further um, mentioning not only the uh, flood archives collection and the activities of the committee from 1997 um, but also um, will suggest council records um committee records um because there there are of course you know discussions of floods in in winnipeg uh throughout our history yeah. um and even like we have private donations like the records of um mayor susan thompson so she she donated her records uh to the archives and oh, cool. uh, uh, she was mayor at the time of the 1997 flood and i i know that there's some some really great photos of the uh, salute to the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, so oh. the event on, yeah, May 13th uh, to, to thank members of the uh, Canadian Armed Forces who came to Winnipeg's aid. And um, because that was actually the uh, largest, I, I believe it was the largest military operation 
uh, for the Canadian Armed Forces since uh, the Korean War. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think uh, 3,000 members of the military. That's wild. I feel like I have photos somewhere of like armed forces or something at my grandma's yard helping sandbag. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I was evacuated there, so I don't remember much of it, but like I know the news was there, so. Yeah. I'll try and track some stuff down from that eventually, but it's interesting to see stuff from other people's experience too, because it's a really faint memory for me. Yeah, my family was actually living in in Brandon at the time, Um, and we had friends. What I remember is like we had friends from Toronto who kept calling us to see if we were all right. (laughs) Like (laughs) Brandon is on the Assiniboine River, so so we were fine. But we also had uh, you know friends from Winnipeg calling. Uh, I just talked to my mom about this last week to see what she remembered and. Um, she was saying, yeah, we had friends from Winnipeg as well calling to say, like, can you host a, a family in, in your basement or at your house? And she oh, was wow. like, so of, of course I said yes. And I was like, mom, well, like, from what I remember of that basement, there was like a, a, like a washer, dryer, uh, boxes, and, and my brothers put up like a mini stick rink, right? Like, I had no idea where she was going to put this family, but like, <laughs> like better lodgings uh. <laughs> yeah you make yeah, two I, mean, I, guess. I guess you gotta go somewhere so <laughs> yeah yeah I was just texting with a friend too who I know uh was evacuated and lived in St. Adolf and they were sharing their experiences as well and it was eventful right like yeah. I, I hope that we'll have uh these memories for future generations but as we know memories fade and uh when they do like we'll have that as we say in archives that sliver of a sliver uh, <laughs> of the of memory or records uh at least preserved in the archives right yeah uh, absolutely yeah sabrina did you have anything else uh no just uh if people want to go check out the archives online or in person i guess how should they do that so uh, yes, I think starting um, online is, is definitely uh, a great starting point. It's We have like 244 photos already of the 1997 flood online. Um, and I, I do hope that uh, by the time this airs, our, our uh, flood digital exhibit will be up as well. And that will point people to uh, other flood related collections. Um, but yeah, only sort of a fraction of our holdings is uh, digital or digitized. So we definitely encourage people to um, uh, to see what's what's here, uh, to contact us with any questions. Um, we are open for research by appointment, uh, and would bring out kind of records to the research room for consulting and. Uh, I, I really hope that there's somebody, I, I find the news releases personally very kind of interesting to read through. Uh, yeah. And it, it's, you definitely see in those records, like the tension mount, mounting and mm. like, the crest approaches and it's just such a, a rich collection. Yeah. Thank you so much for telling us about it. It's very exciting. Oh, thanks for your interest and, and the invitation. So you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at One Great History. We're on Twitter at the number One Great History. We will share some of the pictures William Beale took on our social media channels. We'll also be sharing them on our website, onegreathistory.wordpress.com. You can also see our sources there. 
Uh, you can check us out on Redbubble. We have merch drawn by Alex and Nick. If you want to wear old Winnipeg logos or building designs, we've got you covered. And you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash one great history, where we do all kinds of fun bonus episodes where I play mean tricks on Alex. <laughs> or we talk about space garbage camps. We're going to talk about space garbage. Yeah. All kinds of fun stuff going on. So check us out there and uh, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.